So we begin with T.S. Eliot, as we always have. T.S. Eliot said in Little Getting that the end of all our exploring is to arrive at where we started and know the place for the first time. So we want to start where we want to end up, which is the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, because that is the great Trinitarian mystery into which Christ came to call us. So I want to go back to the Emmaus Road story. Our series is called Emmaus Road Initiative. So we have to go to the Emmaus Road story. And as you know, the two disciples are dispirited. The crucifixion seems like it's dashed their hopes. And so the best thing for them to do is to go back and put their lives in order as best they can. So they're on the way to Emmaus and Jesus joins them. And Luke tells us their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what were you discussing with each other while you walked? And Luke tells us they stood still and looked sad. They stood still and looked sad. Beneath its frenetic pace and joyless materialism, this same thing might be said today about Western civilization. Three quarters of a century ago, Henri de Lubac was able to see the Western world in the process of a kind of incipient standing still and looking sad, even though it's all camouflaged with frenetic activity. De Lubac said in the 1930s, after a period of triumphant optimism, which linked the destiny of Europe to that of Christianity, it has now come about that a mood of disillusionment links the destiny of Christianity to that of a Europe supposedly in decline. To the belief that the East could easily be westernized has now succeeded the opinion that any project of making it Christian is chimerical and must be abandoned. And then he quotes from a 1935 book by J. Schulenberger, and Schulenberger says, quote, In the long run, Christianity must recognize that there are certain great religions which it cannot penetrate. Ultimately, Christianity will have to accept this proof that it is linked with a culture and ways of thought that are not universal, end quote. In other words, Kipling was right. The East is East and West is West and never the twain shall meet. And Christianity is culture bound. This is the beginning of multicultural thought, you see. It's part of one culture and it's perfectly okay to talk about it in that culture, but we should keep it to ourselves because it has nothing to do with other cultures. They have their own truth system, and so on and so forth. De Lubac says, quote, this is a disastrous and a fatal idea, an idea which finds among us too much covert agreement. The rumors, by the way, of Christianity's death have been circulating for centuries. Quote, Christianity never will be a state religion in China, to be sure, and the Communist Party in China is still officially atheist, writes the Italian journalist Francesco Sissi, but it is not an exaggeration to say that we are near a Constantinian moment for the Chinese empire. As the government looks to Christianity, particularly Catholicism, for an instrument of social cohesion, end quote. This is in the current issue of First Things. So the idea that Christianity cannot penetrate the East is being disproved in very conspicuous ways in our own time. But we account for Christianity's contribution to social cohesion in very timid ways, not realizing that it has this power to reconcile precisely because it is inherently a reconciling power, without which, as Yeats put it, things that would be gathered by it 
fall apart and the sinner cannot hold. David Bentley Hart argues that modern man without the Christian faith that shaped our civilization, quote, must wander or drift, vainly attempting one or another accommodation with death, never escaping anxiety or ennui, and driven as a result to a ceaseless labor of distraction or acquisition or willful idiocy, end quote. So how about this standing still and looking sad? The pre-Christian world was death-haunted just as the Christian world is Christ-haunted. But the latter is haunted by the risen Christ. It is tinged with Easter joy, comparable to the Easter hope that we talked about in earlier sessions. As it dispenses with Christianity, Western culture swaps its Christ-hauntedness for the old death-hauntedness of the pre-Christian world, made even more haunting by the fact that the memory of the Easter hope, which it willfully renounces, leaves it more spiritually forlorn than the pagan world ever was. Every laugh rings hollow if death gets the last one. Every laugh rings hollow if death gets the last one. Alexander Schmemann, who's an Orthodox scholar, says the following, quote, Christianity was the end of all natural joy. It was the beginning of Easter joy. But it was the end of all natural joy, says Schmemann. Quote, it revealed its impossibility, the impossibility of natural joy. Its futility, its sadness, because it revealed the abyss of man's alienation from God and the inexhaustible sadness of this alienation. The cross of Christ signified an end of all natural rejoicing. It made it indeed impossible. Since the gospel was preached in this world, all attempts to go back to pure pagan joy, all renaissances, all healthy optimism were bound to fail. Christianity gave us a sense of the story of what is happening in the world. Benedict has a wonderful thing. He says, as Europe de-Christianizes, it loses its way in history. It can no longer understand what is happening in history. And so as we lose our Christian heritage as a culture, we are losing our organizing principle. And of course, the word logos precisely means organizing principle. Now what we need is the logos. Modernity's organizing principle is self-invalidating. Modernity is the culture that defines itself over against what went before. That's why it calls itself modernity. And so it necessarily is a dead-end culture. It cannot pass on its central premise without violating that premise. For its message to those who come after is to ignore the advice of those who went before. It's a message it cannot pass on without violating it. Which is why it stammers when it tries to name its historical successor. It comes up with postmodernism. It's the best it can do. The West's ideologically induced historical amnesia has been accompanied by a gradual erosion of sacramental and anthropological sensibilities. And I want to spend a little time talking about this. These sensibilities were once the common inheritance of those living in cultures that have fallen under Christian influence. Modernity destroyed, I think, our sacramental sensibilities, and postmodernity is destroying our anthropological sensibilities. What do I mean by sacramental sensibility? I mean the deep meaning of materiality, of the material order of creation, 
Creation is shot through with the grandeur of God, as uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins tells us. Sacramental sensibilities should allow us to see that creation is shot through with the grandeur of God. And a robust sacramental uh, sensibility awakens us to that. Nothing in cultures as influenced by Christianity as ours has been can be explained without reference to the impact of Christianity. So I have a little sidebar here, which is a little technical. This is like the fine print for tonight. The groundwork for today's secularism was laid centuries ago, arguably as a result of the very effort to prevent the church, church's quintessential sacrament, the Eucharist, from being interpreted in a merely symbolic way. So let me preface what I'm about to say by assuring you that I'm one who treasures time spent in silence before the Blessed Sacrament. But it's been argued, and I think persuasively, that by assuming that to defend the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, it was necessary to reject any symbolic meaning, the Fourth Lateran Council unwittingly impoverished both the Eucharist and the larger function of Christian sacramentality, which is precisely to reconcile the natural and the supernatural orders. Healing the sharp separation between the sacred and the profane which was a stable of all archaic religion. Sacramentality brings these two things together and allows us to see that creation itself is shot through with the grandeur of God, that the sacred and the profane are not set off that way. There is a world of difference between saying on one hand that in addition to the fact that Christ is quite literally present in the Eucharist, the Eucharist has a symbolic meaning, and on the other saying that the Eucharist is only a symbol. And ironically, the tendency to defend the real presence by renouncing any symbolic meaning created a kind of wall of separation between the ordinary material order, which collapsed back into the profane status from which the incarnation had rescued it, and the bread, wine, body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ in the Eucharist, which returned to the status of the sacred now again alien from things profane. What should have been a manifestation of a sacramental reconciliation of the sacred and the profane, of nature and the supernatural, of the seen and the unseen, an anticipation of a new heaven and a new earth, which awaits us in the resurrected life, retained its sacramental uniqueness at the cost of no longer having any implication for the rest of the created order. Even though this wall of separation between the real and the symbolic was erected to prevent the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist from being watered down into something merely symbolic, its effect was to reintroduce a variation on the pre-Christian anthropology of the opposition between the sacred and the profane, which contributed to the shift from a healthy God and Caesar secularism to a deadly wall of separation between religion and the political order that is now emerging. Now, that's a very dense little piece. But the reason I wanted to share it is because it shows how much influence Christian revelation and Christian sacramentality have on our world. Okay, sacramental sensibility. What's the easy way to get a feel for sacramental sensibility? I have two lines of English poetry, 20th century English poetry, that I use to compare these things. One is Yeats, who says... Michelangelo left a proof on the Sistine Chapel roof. That is to say, go to the Sistine Chapel, look up. If you don't get it, you're in trouble. 
See what I mean? He left a proof on the Sistine Chapel roof. Now, it has to be said that Yeats himself was in this history of the loss of sacramental sensibilities. The truth is that, that the real proof was on the Sistine Chapel altar. But by the time you get to Yeats, he's abstracted from that and he's looking for it in aesthetic places only. In other words, he's looking for it in art, literature, music, and so on and so forth. It's certainly there. He was no longer able to spot it on the altar, but he could still spot it on the ceiling. So he still has some of these sacramental sensibilities. So that's very good. Eliot, of course, and the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, again invoking Michelangelo, says this, and this is one of the most powerful lines of English poetry in the 20th century. In the room, the women come and go talking of Michelangelo. In other words, they pride themselves on being esthetes and being sophisticated and knowing certain things about the world and history and art and so on, so they can discourse over these things. But Eliot catches it when he says they come and go talking of Michelangelo. Real sacramental sensibilities have completely lost here. It's turned into chatter. So that's what I mean when I say that, that modernity has robbed us of our sacramental sensibilities. And then there are the anthropological sensibilities that we're being robbed of in the postmodern period. What do I mean by that? I mean the normative meaning of human nature, precisely as made manifest in the human body and in the paschal structure and anticipatory Christian meaning of human culture. The human body and human culture uh, as normative in some profound sense. Shemaimon, I quoted Shemaimon before, he says attempts to revive a pure pagan joy are doomed in the aftermath of Christianity. We have seen in our day how much effort has been expended on the impossible attempt to revive a pagan joy in a previously Christ-haunted world, whether it is Nietzsche giving the title Gay Science to his hollow attempt to resurrect the dreary concept of the eternal return, or the recent efforts now bordering on hysteria to keep the massively documented dangers and sundry pathologies associated with what we call the gay lifestyle from exposing the term as a sad self-parody of what it claims to be. I'm not talking about homosexuality here. I'm talking about what's called the gay lifestyle. The fact that it was given this name, just as Nietzsche gave the name gay science to his attempt to promote as viable some kind of pagan joy. Each of these turns dark if you take a closer look. So in that sense, Shmeiman is absolutely right. No revival of pagan joy. But as for anthropological sensibilities being lost, in case you didn't get the memo, here it is. I have my sources. And this came to me just about a week or 10 days ago from a friend of mine. And it is the email sent to all the students at a university I will not name. I can't bring myself to tell you the name of the university or the name of the dean of students who wrote this email, but I am going to quote you from the email. Here it is. It has recently come to my attention that the gender and sexual orientation options on the student satisfaction survey were not inclusive for all students. Now, before we get to the heart of the matter, the Student Satisfaction Survey. The Student Satisfaction Survey. Can you imagine 
University of Paris, 1350, circulating a student satisfaction survey. Oxford University in the middle of the 19th century circulating a student satisfaction survey. This is the inmates running the asylum, you see. But he goes on. As a university that prides itself on multiculturalism, it is critical that we address the needs and interests of marginalized and underrepresented groups, which of course includes those who identify as LGBTQQI. There's going to be a quiz. LGBTQQI. Well, even the dean of students realizes that not everybody is up on it. So in parentheses, he tells us, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning, intersex. Don't ask me. I don't know. But put it in your spell checker because it's probably here to stay. Now, here's the problem. Those categories were entirely too narrow. There were people who were not covered. We're talking about the loss of anthropological sensibilities here understanding what it means to be a human being and to be made in a certain way, you see. He goes on, as such, I'm writing to personally grovel. He didn't say grovel, he said apologize. As such, I'm writing to personally apologize for the limited number of options on the demographic portion of the survey and to assure you that we will take measures to ensure that the demographic questions on the next dissemination of the student satisfaction survey are inclusive. For those of you who may not have identified with the listed options for gender or sexual orientation, please write your responses on the survey in the first comment box. In other words, make it up. We'll accept it. We'll add it to the list. Just make it up. It'll be there. Well, how about if I decide I really am not part of the human species? I'm actually a cross between a frog and a prince. Can I put, put that in there? <laughs> well, there you have it. The loss of anthropological sensibilities. It's very widespread. It's not quite as ludicrous as that email, but it's in the air. You see what I mean? It doesn't bode well for us. So let's go back to the Emmaus Road story. That just has to do with standing still and looking sad and being confused, which is true of them and true of us. They say to Jesus, well, we had these hopes for this man and he was crucified and then to make matters worse the women went to the tomb and the tomb was empty there were angels there who said he's alive and some of the people from our group went and and found it as the women said but him they did not see but him they did not see this is as close as luke comes to to cracking a joke because they're telling that to jesus he's standing right there you can imagine jesus saying say oh you don't say <laughs> him they did not see what luke means by that is they don't understand they don't understand. So then he said to them, how foolish and slow of heart, not dim-witted, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have said. We have to think about how to make this connection. And Jesus makes it for them. We'll come back to that in a second. But as I said in earlier sessions, history takes time and God gives it time. Severus of Antioch, writing about the world before Christ, said, the time had not yet come to teach these children faith in a single divinity in three hypostases. Remember the word hypostasis is the Greek word for person. The time had not come to teach these children faith in a single divinity in three hypostases, for they would have been brought once again to think that they were speaking of several gods. In other words, you don't spring the Trinity on them too quickly. You see, 
History takes time and God gives it time. The time to speak of such things awaited a vocabulary subtle and rich enough to express profound paradoxical truths with a degree of rational clarity, namely the Greek word hypostasis and the entire philosophical tradition from which it came. So not only were the Hebrew scriptures contributing to this humanity's attempt, which is called Christianity, to get its mind wrapped around what happened in the Christ event, but pagan philosophy was making its contribution. Pagan philosophy itself was a preparatio evangelica, a preparation for the gospel. So I want to do a little parenthesis here on the Greek philosophy because that will come into play when we get to Raphael a little bit later in the evening. Benedict has made the point that Christianity came into a world where philosophy and religion were at war with each other, and Christians more or less sided with philosophy. What Christ did in reconciling the disciples on the road to Emmaus with the Jewish scriptures on one hand and his passion and death on the other is analogous to what the church fathers and the Christians of the Middle Ages did when they looked back, not in this instance on the Hebrew scriptures, but on pagan philosophy. De Lubach says, The church is mindful of those providential harmonies which prepared the resources of Greece and Rome for her first expansion. And she knows well that in this conjunction of events something definitive was accomplished. Yet she does not share the illusion of some of her latter-day children for whom there now remains no more to do. In other words, this reconciling, whether it's Hebrew scriptures or Greek philosophy, that Christianity does instinctively with omnivorous glee. Remember omnivorous glee from last time? <laughs> which Christianity does, this reconciling which Christianity does. We still have to do it today. De Lubach says, we have to do it today because the miracle of the past must continue. She, the church, believes in fresh providential harmonies for her further expansion. This reconciling power of the Christian revelation has to be exercised in every age. And we can look back and see how it was exercised by the early Christians in terms of the scriptures and in terms of Greek philosophy and then again in the Middle Ages with Aristotle and so on. And it's that spirit of reaching out and grabbing these things that appear alien and reconciling them that really is the burden of the talk that I, I want to do tonight. Von Balthasar says, in order to see that each individual aspect in truth receives its full meaning only by its overall relationship to the whole, the art of total vision is required. We have to learn how to see in this Catholic way, small c Catholic, in this universal way. And one can only bring about that reconciliation if one has an organizing principle, a logos, that it has the power to reconcile it all. For example, to take an example from the created order, let's say you're out on a walk and off to the side a few yards, a beautiful kestrel hawk takes a field mouse and it's fantastic, a flash of feathers and, and you look and it's just marvelous. And then as he flies away, you hear the squeal of the field mouse and you wince a little bit at that. And those who see nothing more than the cold logic of Darwinian competition 
Of them you could say, but him they did not see. Because if it were von Balthasar, what he would see in the squeal of the field mouse is what he called the watermark of the cross on creation. The watermark of the cross on creation. The sacrifice of life to another. Unconscious, unwilling, granted. But nevertheless, it's a Catholic vision of it. Not a reduction to something unworthy of us, but a hint from the natural order of something transcendent. That's possible because of the reconciling power of the Logos. So history takes time and God gives it time. Jesus says, was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? It was the suffering of Christ on the cross that was the stumbling block. He made no sense of that. But he said, no, instead of walking away from it, use it as a lens. Use it as a lens and look back. So if you get to the end of the Old Testament, you know it's not finished, but you can't imagine where it's going to go. But once you see the New Testament, you realize it could only have gone there. Now you have the key to see the whole thing. You have to go back and read the book over again. It's like a detective novel. You get to the end, you realize the answer, and then you go back and you see it's nothing but clues. They're all there. You see? So Jesus is telling him, look, take that thing and turn it around. Use it as a lens and the whole thing comes together. Again, the reconciling power of the Paschal drama. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them things about himself and all the scripture. D. Lubach says, Jesus is exegete of scripture preeminently in the act by which he fulfills his mission, namely the Paschal drama. I cannot, of course, claim to be a community organizer. That is above my pay grade. But the experience of the last couple of years traveling and speaking in many places around the country has confirmed my belief that one of the keys to the organic emergence of community and real friendship is the existence of a shared story about what is happening in history. But such a story only becomes the truly reconciling force that it can be when it ceases to be just a story that can be merely reiterated and becomes a drama into which one enters as a participant. Whereas stories can be retold, dramas must necessarily be reenacted. And so if the story made recognizable by the crucified and risen Christ is to be lived and not just rotely recited, there must be a place and a time and a palpable experience that function to turn the story of the past into a lived contemporary experience. In other words, there needs to be a sacrament that allows us entry into the story here and now, not just a story in the past. Jesus in John's gospel at the beginning, we talked about this earlier, said to the first disciples, what do you want? What do you really want, you see? What do you, what do you long for? I've been thinking about this word longing. I think the word longing is the most beautiful word in the English language. What does longing mean? If you have a longing, it has to have been long-standing. You don't wake up one fine day and have a longing. You know what I mean? It's pre-existent, this longing. And it's tinged with its own fulfillment. There's something bittersweet about all longing. And ultimately, what we long for is to be long. We long for intimacy, for communion. That's what we long for. Or you could say we long for 
companionship. And of course, the root of the word companionship is the word pan, which means bread. We are companions because we break bread together. So the question is, where would we instinctively look for this sacramental experience of communion? Instinctively. Alexander Schmemann says, centuries of secularism have failed to transform eating into something strictly utilitarian. Food is still treated with reverence. A meal is still a rite. The last natural sacrament of family and friendship of life that is more than eating and drinking. People may not understand what this something more is, but they nevertheless desire to celebrate it. They are still hungry and thirsty for sacramental life. And so back to the Emmaus Road story, as they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. This is really beautiful. This is really fantastic. They Remember, they stood still and looked sad. And Jesus is on the move. He's moving. We're not going to set up shop here. It's like the transfiguration. Peter wants to dip it in bronze and put it on the mantelpiece. No, this is ongoing. He's going into the future. But they urged him strongly, saying, Abide with us because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to abide with them. I use the word abide here because this is it's the same word, of course, but it's sometimes translated stay with us. But if you ha we have to connect this. One of the beautiful things about the Gospels is you have the synoptics and you have John. And they, they give us a kind of stereo effect. And so with John, the first disciples said to him, when he said, what do you want? They said to him, where do you abide? The question is, where do you abide? Now at the end of Luke's Gospel, they say, no, abide with us. Abide with us. This is a huge question for the first Christians. He says he will be with us until the end of the age. But how does he abide with us? Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Likewise, the ritual that both commemorates and makes contemporary the new covenant is an extension of the rituals uh, that cemented the old covenant, namely the Passover and the story of, of manna. This is all circulating around the Eucharist, as you can obviously tell. I want to do a version of the Last Supper here in a minute, a typical Monty Python version, but I couldn't match what Jesus himself does in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John. We have to think about this. If the Eucharist is just a symbol, then as Flannery O'Connor said, to hell with it. And if anybody thinks it's just a symbol, they should go read chapter six of the Gospel of John. Jesus has just multiplied loaves, you know, and the crowds love that. It's really fantastic. They, they want to see him do that again. So everybody comes out for that. And they want some free bread. So there for a few minutes, he has a mega church. But apparently he's not pleased. You can feel the tension in his voice when he says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. Now see, he's reinterpreting. Jesus doesn't start from scratch. History takes time and God gives it time. You interiorize what went before. Everything has to be interiorized and we have to be drawn into it. So he interiorizes the manna story and the Passover story. That's what the New Testament is all about. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. I tell you, if you've lusted after her in your heart, you've already committed adultery. You see, it has to be interiorized. So he says, your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness and they died. 
This is the bread of life that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever and the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. That was like a bomb going off to the Jewish imagination. What? What? The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how could this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, if we never read this gospel and we covered the bottom part of it and we had a little quiz, what's he going to do? We would probably all say, well, he's going to explain the metaphor. You know, help it go down a little easier. You see what I mean? He doesn't do that. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. This flesh and blood is going boom, boom, boom. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me. There we have that word again. And I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate and they died, but the one who eats this bread will live forever. And when he looked up from his notes, <laughs> the crowd was gone. There's a few stragglers. I know this experience, by the way. That's why. <laughs> so, because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him, didn't want to be seen with him. So Jesus asked the twelve, do you also wish to go away? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Precisely what he wanted to do is to thin it out to people who implicitly believed in him, trusted him. You see? What Benedict calls the creative minority. Christianity is going, in many cultures today, Christianity is going to have to be the creative minority. Not just those who check the box which says Christian or Catholic, but the creative minority. So back to Emmaus. How will he abide? Precisely as he says in John 6. When he was at table with them, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to them. Their eyes were opened. They recognized him. This is an important word. It's really a kind of synonym for metanoia. Recognized. Suddenly, suddenly they saw him. And he vanished at the same instant. That's a strange way of abiding. But it's a Eucharistic way of abiding. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? So the whole thing starts with them being slow of heart, unable to understand. And then at the end, their hearts are burning. Now the Emmaus story, of course, is Luke's rendition of the Mass, the Liturgy of the Word and then the Liturgy of the Eucharist. De Lubach says the Eucharist is the New Testament summed up. And in another place he says the Eucharist is the whole Bible in a single mouthful. So everything, according to De Lubach and many others, 
uh, is summed up in the Eucharist. When you do what I do, a good piece of rhetoric is like gold. You know, you want to hold on to it. And I have one I've been using for many years, which is that Jesus said, take this and eat it. He didn't say, take it and figure it out. That's really true. It's idiot proof. And for fallen people like ourselves, we need something that's idiot proof. You don't have to have a PhD. You don't have to fully understand it. The more you soften your heart and receive it in the right manner, of course, the better. But you don't have to figure it out. I'm going to quibble about that in a minute, but not right now. So the passion reveals the Trinity because it shows the second person of the Trinity doing what the Trinity does all the time, which is the canonic self-transcendence, self-offering uh, to, the, to another for others. That's the Trinitarian gesture par excellence. So the passion reveals the Trinity and the Eucharist interprets the passion. And again, you have the stereophonic thing here because in John's Gospel, you have the washing of the feet and the synoptics. In Paul, you have the Eucharist. But the way I want to look at it is this. God has very poor taste, which is very good news for us all. Jesus chooses these disciples that are, uh, you know, they're not the brightest lights on the tree. They follow him around for three years. They never get it. And here it is the night before he's going to, go to his passion, and it's too late to try to bring him up to speed. He knows, though, he knows them well enough to know exactly what they're going to do when he dies. And if you want a preview of this, it's the raising of Lazarus. Jesus goes to, to Lazarus' tomb, and the wailing women come out. Some of the texts say the, the women were weeping. It doesn't mean weeping. It means wailing, and you usually hired them to do it. It was a ritual. And there's an anthropology behind that, and we don't have time to get into it. Anyway, the wailing women came out, and they're wailing and wailing and wailing. you got to remember, 45 seconds earlier, Jesus had said, I am the resurrection. And now five feet away are a bunch of these wailing women looking at the tomb, wailing away. Five feet away from the resurrection itself. And it says Jesus was deeply troubled. The, the, the Greek term means he snorted with indignation. In other words, they're capitulating to death. They're going to the tomb. They're making a beeline for the tomb, and they're doing all the tomb stuff. They're setting, you know, they're setting up, bringing their flowers and candles and incense and all the rest of it, and they're coming periodically and having a little ritual. In other words, they, he knows that the disciples will go and start a standard religion. That's how they'll remember him. Gerard demonstrates that all all religion starts at the tomb. All religion starts at at, at the corpse, the place of the corpse. So Jesus knows that's what they would do. So he decides to take matters into his own hands, quite literally. So he gathers them for a Passover, which is a commemoration of getting out of Egypt. But it's not just a commemoration. It's an entering into the story. It's very sacramental. It's a story about getting out of Egypt, but it's a story that the Jews themselves entered into in Passover. So it's very important. It went from story to drama. And Jesus is taking that and reinterpreting it. And so he says to them, you wanted to be with me. You really wanted to abide with me. They say to him, where do you abide? You wanted to be with me, be, be part of me. Now I'm going to tell you how to do that and how to get out of Egypt at the same time. There's only one way out. And here it is. This loaf of bread is my life, my body, my life. Now, watch carefully. Here's what you do with it. You take it, you give thanks for it because it's a gift. It's not yours. It's on loan. God gave it to you. He wants it back. 
you give thanks for it. And then you break it and you give it away. And in my Monty Python version, the disciples, especially down at the end of the table, are poking each other saying, what, did I miss something? I know this is a very important moment here, but I, I didn't quite get that. Is there something? And so Jesus repeats it. This, he says, is my life. You want to be part of it? Here's how. You take it. You give thanks for it. You break it or let it be broken. And you give it away. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. It's, it's not a spectator sport. It's a participatory activity. You want to be part of it. You have to be part of it. You want a part in it, you have to take part in it. And then he takes a cup of wine and he says, this is the cup of my suffering. Blood shed so that sins will be forgiven. It's the biggest question. What's the relationship between the shedding of Jesus' blood and the forgiveness of sins? Huge question. Well, one little piece of the answer to that question is, as we talked about in earlier sessions, the world has always had this way of taking away its own sins. Sin destroys relationships. Relationships become more and more antagonistic and so on and so forth. At a certain point, everybody starts to look around for somebody to blame it on, and lo and behold, they always find somebody. And then when they find this person, they know that this person is the witch or the culprit or the traitor or whatever it is, and they all together with a great sense of moral righteousness lynch this person. And they all walk back from the lynching feeling that they have just uh, solved the world's problems and they're very proud of themselves and so on and so forth. Their sins have vanished. All that sinfulness just got washed away on the shoulders of the scapegoat. That's how the world used to take away sins. And it's actually worked in a sort of way. I mean, it worked uh, temporarily until the grumpiness started again. They had to do it again. Now, Jesus knows that tomorrow afternoon he's going to shove a stick in the spokes of that mechanism because he's going to reveal the innocence of the victim, which is going to begin to deconstruct that whole operation. If that's all Jesus does, then Nietzsche's right. We should get rid of this thing. Because if all he does is break this mechanism for periodically getting rid of all this madness uh, in a fairly economical way, only one person gets lynched and everybody else has some peace. If all he does is wreck that, then uh, he throws the world into a terrible crisis. We're in the crisis anyway because we're not keeping pace. What he does is he says, because that's going to happen tomorrow afternoon, you, 12, are going to be asked to play an active part in the bringing about of forgiveness, real forgiveness. God's not going to wave a wand and take away your sins like that old mechanism. God will only take away the sins of those who ask their sins to be taken away. But in order to ask for your sins to be taken away and receive forgiveness, you have to know that you have some. In other words, you have to hear the cock crow. And Jesus is going to die on the cross tomorrow afternoon so that we can hear the cock crow. So we'll see the innocence of the victim and recognize what we've done like Paul did on the road to Damascus like Peter did when he heard the cock crow and realized that he too had been caught up in the spirit of the age or the crowd. So I don't know how to solve the whole problem of the relationship between Jesus' death and the forgiveness of sins, but I know a piece of it, an anthropological piece of it, which makes it intelligible in a sort of anthropological way. We can't reduce the whole mystery to that for sure, 
but it's a piece. And it's a piece that could be quite helpful in evangelization, apologetics, catechesis, and so on. So if we don't participate in forgiveness, if we don't bring forgiveness, experience it ourselves and extend it to others and try to create a world in which forgiveness is on offer at all times, then we'll start to choke on our own sinfulness. And I thought about that the other day when they caught these men in New York who were trying to blow up a synagogue in half of New York. And the newspaper article said, a law enforcement source said, quote, they were filled with rage and wanted to take it out on what they considered the source of all problems in America, the Jews. It's just absolutely classic. All bad things that are going to happen will be performed by unforgiven people, as we've said before. And so Jesus is bringing us, all Christians, into this process. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. Take your own suffering and conjoin it with mine. Make up for what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. That's what Paul said. That's a mysterious way. But also the way of simply extending forgiveness to others. By the way, it's not just some liberal shrug. This forgiveness, sometimes it requires a person to to be the Dutch uncle. Some people interpret forgiveness as a kind of indifference. But before people can experience forgiveness, they have to experience contrition. They have to become aware that they need forgiveness. And sometimes helping them to discover that fact can be a little difficult. But this forgiveness is not just moral. This is important. It's not just moral or forensic. We should substitute in a way the word reconciliation again. That's my key word for tonight. Reconciliation. Forgiveness is really reconciliation. Christianity is about reconciliation at every single level. Repairing the broken relationships everywhere. Bringing everything together. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. This is 1 Corinthians. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. Reconciliation. Bringing everything by the integrating and reconciling power of the Logos, everything into reconciliation. Central to Hansers von Balthasar's attempt to provide, quote, fresh providential harmonies for the church's further expansion, that's a phrase from de Lubach, is his effort to ground theology once again in truth, goodness, and beauty, and to do so by placing beauty at the center of his Herculean effort. This is von Balthasar. Why beauty? In von Balthasar's estimation, only its recentering on beauty can cure the church of the autoimmune disease she tends to contract by exposure to a deracinated rationalism and therefore to restore the sacramental sensibilities she exists to awaken and for which the world now longs. Michelangelo left a proof on the Sistine Chapel roof. But at the very moment he was up on the high scaffold doing that, a few yards away, Raphael was leaving an even more stunning proof on the walls of the Stanza della Signatura in the Vatican Palace. And he's exhibiting what von Balzar calls the art of total vision. All the great minds of Raphael's time were caught up in this exciting work of gathering together a great Catholic synthesis is taking place at the beginning of the 16th century on the threshold of the age in which it blew apart. 
But at this moment, everything is being gathered together. What Jesus told the disciples on the road to Emmaus about himself is what Raphael depicted in the school of Athens and the disputation on the sacrament. These are on facing walls in this room, which is maybe two-thirds the size of this room. Paul says all things are held together in him, and this is, I think, what Raphael is able to accomplish here. Von Balthasar said he aimed at bringing about a smooth passage from a true and therefore religious philosophy to a biblical theology of revelation. And I think, again, that's what Raphael does. So let me make a comment about the School of Athens. Faced with the plethora of philosophies and religions, writes John Henry Cardinal Newman, the church set about the business of claiming to herself what they said rightly, correcting their errors, supplying their defects, completing their beginnings, expanding their surmises, and thus gradually, by means of them, enlarging the range and refining the sense of our own teaching. The church looks to pagan philosophy and begins the sorting process, taking what is ripe and ready, teasing it out from the things that are unworthy of it, and in that engagement, refining her own capacity for understanding and communicating the mystery she exists to communicate. Great reconciling power, omnivorous glee, grab up this, bring it in here, put it on the table. There's truth in it. Let's extract it and put it to use. Exactly what Raphael has done artistically in the Stanza della Signatura. Raphael's friend, Donato Bramante, was the uh, chief architect and overseer of the building of St. Peter's Basilica, which was in process at the same time. Anybody at the time standing in the middle of the room looking at the School of Athens would have recognized that the architectural structure in the School of Athens was a rendition of the unfinished basilica. So think of what Raphael is telling us. Greek philosophy is the unfinished church. It's a magnificent statement of the reconciling power of Christianity. Paul in Ephesians says, Christ Jesus is the capstone. Through him the whole structure is held together and grows into a temple sacred to the Lord. So everything is being drawn into the church. The disciples on the Emmaus Road, when they looked back, they saw the Hebrew Scriptures. When people in Raphael's time looked back, they saw pagan philosophy. What Christ did for the disciples on the road to Emmaus one of his disciples, Raphael, is doing for the spirit of his age. And what do you see when you look at the school of Athens? You have Plato and Aristotle. Plato is pointing up and Aristotle is pointing down. And more importantly, they're walking towards you. And you have all these philosophers more or less in the posture that corresponded to their philosophical mood. So it's really quite an interesting analysis of these philosophers. But the most important feeling is the feeling you have from Plato and Aristotle. The philosophers are moving toward the viewer standing in the middle of the room. But if you turn and look in the other direction, the disputation on the sacrament, there's only one thing to talk about now, the revelation, the revelation of the Trinity and its instantiation in the Eucharist. So in the other direction, you have an eschatological horizon going horizontally, and then you have the vertical dimension, God the Father, God the Son showing his wounds, so the crucified Christ. Below that, the Holy Spirit, the dove. 
and directly below that, the Eucharist. And here, everything is moving toward it. So if you stand in the middle of the room, you see all of history coming this way, and you turn and you see it's going that way. You're put right in the middle of history and oriented toward the Trinity and the Eucharistic instantiation of the Trinitarian revelation. These frescoes give an almost unimaginably expansive and breathtaking panorama of Catholic self-understanding in the early 16th century. And the robust Christian humanism that flourished at the papal court under Julius II. To stand between them with the ancient philosophers coming toward one from the rear and the movement continued away from one in the fresco opposite, moving toward the intersection of the vertical Trinitarian reality and its earthly Eucharistic self-manifestation is to be placed in the true center of the history of the world. When I am lifted up, said Christ, I will draw all humanity to myself. And you feel it in that room. You feel the attractive power. So history is not being pushed by human desire. It's being drawn, or we could say reconciled, by the attractive power of the ultimately desirable, namely the Logos. It's a reversal of historical causality. Linear historicism is dismantled. A history is being drawn. In Colossians we have, He Himself is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Through Him God was pleased to reconcile all things to Himself, whether on earth or in heaven. The Church Fathers stress that created beings have logoi, have a logic of their own, a form, a structure appropriate to their nature. Sin involves the corruption of this form and structure one that the sinner cannot repair by his own efforts, as Paul stressed. The fallen world can only recover its meaning and place in the drama of world redemption when it falls under the mimetic influence of the living Logos, who is the pattern and template for creation itself, and as such, quote, draws all creation to himself by the sheer moral and spiritual beauty of Christ unforgettably revealed in his self-emptying on Golgotha. Now, I said, Jesus said, take it and eat it, not figure it out. And now, sadly, I have to quibble about my favorite piece of rhetoric. History is not something that we can work out. And in that sense, Paul's right about grace and works. But it is something that we must figure out precisely by recognizing its prefiguration found in Hebrew scriptures, Greek philosophy, and elsewhere, and its transfiguration in the Passion story, celebrated and made contemporary in the Eucharist, from which we are dismissed precisely in order to go about the task of reconfiguring the world according to the figura, the logos, now made known to us in the drama of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. So we do have to figure it out in the sense that we have the logos, the figura, the form, the structure, the integrating power. And everything has to be drawn, is being drawn into the reconciling power of that. John Henry Cardinal Newman, responding to Henry Hart Millman, said, Now the phenomenon admitted on all hands is this that a great portion of what is generally received as Christian truth is in its rudiments or in its separate parts to be found in heathen philosophies and religions. 
So this is what was happening in the 19th century, as I've said before, as anthropologists were bringing in all this information and discovering that they had aspects that could be found in Christianity, which led them to conclude that Christianity was just a hodgepodge of basically universal things. It was not very unique and so on and so forth. So Newman says, for instance, the doctrine of a trinity is found both in the East and the West. So is the ceremony of washing. So is the rite of sacrifice. The doctrine of the divine word is Platonic. The doctrine of the incarnation is Indian. Of the divine kingdom is Judaic. The connection of sin with the body is Gnostic. Celibacy is known to the monks of China and Japan. Sacerdotal order is Egyptian. The idea of a new birth is Chinese and Eleusinian. Belief in sacramental virtue is Pythagorean and honors to the dead are polytheism. Such is the general nature of the facts before us. Mr. Millman argues from it, quote, These things are in heathenism, therefore they are not Christian. We, on the contrary, prefer to say, These things are in Christianity, therefore they are not heathen. That is, we prefer to say, and we think that Scripture bears us out on saying it, that from the beginning, the moral governor of the world has scattered the seeds of truth far and wide over its extent, and that these have variously taken root and grown up, as in the wilderness, wild plants to be sure, but living, end quote. The seeds of the truth all over the world. But what has to happen is they have to be reconciled, which is what Christianity is doing. So, one more reference to the Last Supper. When Jesus says, this is my body, my flesh, eat it, he does not hand, obviously, his flesh to them. Nor does he hand, by the way, the flesh of a lamb. This is Passover, but it's not a lamb. It's bread and wine. And this is very interesting because you can't go out and pick a loaf of bread off a tree. And you can't go out and get some wine out of a creek. Both of these things are the fruits of the earth and the work of human hands. They require our participation. And that's why we have the consecration after the offertory. We have to bring our offerings. So when he says, this is my flesh, he doesn't offer us flesh. He offers us a loaf of bread. When he says, this is my blood, he doesn't give us a cup of blood, but a cup of wine. Now, the first Christians were thought to be cannibals by their contemporaries because word got out what they were doing in there. We know from anthropological sources that the origin of human culture coincides with cannibalism. So it's very interesting that there's an explicit reference to cannibalism in the Eucharist. But when Jesus offers us this apparent flesh and blood, what he gives us is bread and wine, namely the first course of the Messianic banquet at the end of history. So the Eucharist is situated always and ever at the center of history. It's the movable feast, but it's always dead center because it precisely harkens back to the very beginning and to the very end. And only now are we able to really appreciate the power and meaning of what shocked the Jews in John 6, namely the cannibalistic reference. So... In light of that, René Girard said in an interview not too terribly long ago, quote, 
To those who say that the Eucharist is rooted in archaic cannibalism, instead of saying no, we have to say yes. The real history of man is religious history, which goes back to primitive cannibalism. Primitive cannibalism is religion, and the Eucharist recapitulates the history from Alpha to Omega, end quote. Now, in light of that, here's a story. It comes to us from notes taken at a lecture that Lawrence Vanderpost gave in Zurich in 1951. We don't have the lecture. We have notes. Vanderpost was clearly operating from anthropological data that he had at his disposal. Uh, the story is a story about a Bantu tribe in which the old chief dies, and his eldest son is made chief. But his eldest son does not have the power, the charisma, the uh, sort of natural leadership that a tribe needs. And everything they do to try to instill this young man with this power, fail. He's weak, and the tribe begins to fall apart and break into factions because it doesn't have strong leadership. So which doctors are consulted? They come up with a potion. It consists of the following procedure. A young boy in the tribe who has the quality, charisma, physical power, natural leadership, and so on and so forth, is selected. The witch doctors meet with him, and while talking, they blow powder into his ears and nostrils. After a few minutes, he's reeling. He falls to the ground. He's obviously in convulsions. They drag him to the river. They tie him to a stake. They put him in the water up to his neck, build a cage over the top of him, and feed him on roots for nine months, at the end of which his body is white from being in the river all the time. He's gone completely mad. They sacrifice him. They cut up portions of his body, put them in a pot, and boil it. And the elders and the new king lean over this pot and inhale the steam that comes from this pot. And then each of them sticks a finger into the pot and licks it. Now, imagine that you are a Christian missionary coming into this Bantu tribe with a crucifix. And imagine that you have the task of trying to catechize them on the subject of the Eucharist. Would you have an easier time or a harder time than if you were trying to catechize a typical suburban parish on the Eucharist? Uh, if you see what I mean. In other words, there is something, however crude and primitive and wretched it was, there is a very crude understanding that one has to consume these qualities from the one who has them, you see. So which would find it easier to get across the Eucharistic meaning of Paul's statement in Galatians, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. What this shows is the need for an anthropological peace, just as we need the Old Testament peace. And in the Emmaus story, Jesus shows them how to integrate the Old Testament. In the church fathers and in the scholastics, we learned how to integrate Greek philosophy. But in order to comprehend the full range of the sacrament, we need the anthropological piece. So imagine standing in the Stanza della Signatura and having not the school of Athens on this side, but the Bantu ritual. You see? In other words, it comes all the way back, not just to Greek philosophy, but all the way back to the archaic past, the integrating power of the Logos 
can take in all of that. We now have this anthropological data, which we simply did not have 100 years ago or 200 years ago. We now have it. It looks for all the world like nothing but the antithesis of the gospel. But the gospel's reconciling power brings it all together because Christ is the logos, the template for the creation of the whole thing. Think of the Bantu tribe and of Raphael in this passage from Ephesians. Imagine preaching this to the, to the Bantus. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have become near by the blood of Christ. So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the holy ones and the members of the household of God. De Lubach says, to see in Catholicism one religion among others, one system among others, even if it be added that it is the only true religion and the only system that works, is to mistake its very nature. Catholicism is religion itself. It is the form that humanity must put on in order to finally be itself, end quote. Now, this is interesting because Girard says cannibalism is religion itself. And de Lubach says Catholicism is religion itself. And they are both right, of course. Both agree that the Eucharist is, in T.S. Eliot's phrase, where past and future are gathered. The Eucharist, says René Girard, recapitulates history from Alpha to Omega. But the miracle, as de Lubach says, the miracle of the past must continue. Now we have anthropology to add to the Old Testament and Greek philosophy and all the rest of it. Who knows what will come next? Whatever it is will be subject to this integrating power. What Raphael did in his art, what Newman and de Lubach did in theology and ecclesiology, what Girard has done anthropologically, namely to bear witness to what Paul said in Ephesians, through him the whole structure is held together. It now falls to us to do in our time. And so the very last line in the Emmaus story is, that same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. Remember, they said to Jesus, it's getting late, it's dark out. You don't want to travel at night. Be prudent. That very hour, dark or not, forget it, they have the light of the world. Who, who cares if it's dark? That very hour, you see, their prudence vanished. You see, they become reckless in their eagerness to return to what? The dangerous place. Under conditions, as T.S. Eliot would say, which were unpropitious. Hansers von Balthasar says, quote, now the paradoxical struggle attains its clearest form. The satanic great power whose rage comes from the fact that inwardly it knows it is beaten fights against the Christian powerlessness of the cross which inwardly knows that it is victorious. But the question is not a question of success or failure but of fruitfulness. Shakespeare expressed an unmistakably Christian sentiment through the pagan Enobarbus, the lieutenant of Mark Antony and Antony and Cleopatra. Facing a choice between his own well-being and his duty, Enobarbus said, He that can endure to follow with allegiance a fallen lord does conquer him who did his master conquer and earns a place in the story. I've always loved that. He who can endure to follow with allegiance a fallen lord does conquer him who did his master conquer and earns a place in the story.
In that same spirit, let us return this very hour to Jerusalem, to the crucible of history in this most perilous of time, in order to do for our time what Raphael did for his, to bear witness to what we have seen and touched and tasted. And let us go fortified with the message that Father Zazimov gave to Alyosha in Dostoevsky's brother Karamazov as he was leaving the monastery for the world. Father Zazimov says, You will go forth from these walls, but you will sojourn in the world like a monk. You will have many opponents, but your very enemies will love you. Your life will bring you many misfortunes, but through them you will be happy. And you will bless life and cause others to bless it, which is the most important thing. May the Lord support us all the day long till the shades lengthen and the evening comes and the busy world is hushed and the fever of life is over and our work is done. Then in his mercy may he give us a safe lodging, a holy rest, and peace at last. Amen. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.